It is said that sound is a powerful energy that permeates the universe. It evokes deep positive and negative emotions. It gives character to living beings and non-living things, helps you see things that you normally can't see, and plays a key role in sustaining life. We have our own localized sound energy within us called the voice. From our day-to-day communications to challenging opinions to touching people's heart with music, voice is an integral part of the human race. Today I'm joined by Jennifer Hamadi from Washington DC, USA. She's the author of three bestsellers: The Art of Singing, Discovering and Developing Your True Voice, The Art of Singing on Stage and in the Studio, and Learning to Sing. She also runs a successful coaching clinic in the US and online at findingyourvoice.com where she offers incredible programs to help people find their voice in their singing, in their self-expression and in general communication. Dear listeners, please join me in welcoming Jennifer Hamadi to this episode. Jen, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Believe it or not, you're the first American guest I've had. It's history. Wow. Well, I'm I'm doubly honored then. I've got another three coming up, and so I think uh, who knows? I could be the new American star. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. We'd be happy to have you, Jen. Um, I've got a problem. Okay. I can't sing. And a lot of people feel that way about themselves as well. And those who can sing feel they're not good enough. Why is that? If singing is such an integral part of human society for thousands of years, how come not everyone can do it? Mm. Well, I think that there are two answers to the question. I think the first one is that we have given significance to singing. We as a culture have said that if you're able to sing well it means something so something that is a an automatic uh physical engagement has become something we think about and as a result we get in the way of the natural process so for example uh, no one thinks to themselves that walking is hard once they've learned to do so no one thinks talking is hard once they've learned to do so the reason is it's because we've turned those processes over to our sort of unconscious mind they just are things that happen but we've decided that if you can sing well you're special or you uh, can be very successful and we add all this value and then we therefore get in the way of something that is just a very natural process so that is in my experience the biggest reason that people when they open their mouths they get in the way of this very natural process the sound isn't so great and then they make the decision ah see look at the evidence i can't sing and then they stop so you don't need good genes to be able to sing no i don't think so i mean i think that there is something to be said for inheriting a musical tendency but you and i before the program started were talking about the birds outside of your window you know no bird has a problem singing you know maybe mm-hmm. there's you know one bird out of a million that maybe has something faulty and the same could be said probably for human beings and i think it's something like 3% of the population is actually tone deaf so there are some things like that but if someone has a pleasant speaking voice it makes sense that they would have a lovely singing voice as long as they are able to allow that voice to develop and engage naturally wow um can you tell us a bit about your own background and how you came into singing how you ended up being a coach 
your ups and downs, basically your biography. Yeah. <laughs> you want the very long one, the semi-long one? The, <laughs> the long one. Okay, well, and feel free to interrupt me or redirect me. But, you know, I, I sang ever since I was a little girl. I mean, I always like to say not only for as long as I can remember, but even before I couldn't remember, my parents tell me that I was always singing. They couldn't stop me. And from, for as long as I can remember, I do remember myself not only singing, but really loving to sing. So it just was a very natural uh, extension of myself. And it never occurred to me that I would do anything other than sing professionally. So I sang throughout school and trained in university and then right away almost was lucky enough to become a professional singer, um, singing on records and touring. And then to your point about coaching, that was a really lovely organic uh, transition. When I was doing a lot of touring, uh, people would ask me and, and singing, people would say, how do you sing the way you do? And so I very naturally started working with people. When I was uh, traveling, I would do master classes and workshops. And I was always replying to people's emails about their questions. And those questions became so consistent and my answers so consistent Someone said, why don't you just write it down in a, in a book? You know, you keep writing the same email over and over. And so that's how the first book was born. Uh, so as I uh, moved into my early 30s, mid 30s, and eventually late 30s, I had a book. I was working on the second. I had been touring quite a bit. And my coaching practice was growing. And then right as I was ready to have a family, I just sort of naturally shifted over toward concentrating on the latter uh, more full time. And that's so from a singer to performer to an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, I think one could argue that a, a performers are entrepreneurs in the sense that we are our own businesses, but uh, yes, moving more from being a performer and singer and songwriter into uh, focusing more exclusively on writing books and articles and working with clients. So I do still sing professionally from time to time if I'm asked and, as, as one might imagine, of all professional singers, we're the go-to for weddings and events, and, which is really a, a wonderful honor to be able to do. But no, I, you know, I, I have a family and I, I work with singers and speakers and I, I really love that. I love this, um, this, uh, this vantage point uh, of music. I, I really am enjoying it so much. You mentioned uh, in the introduction to your biography, you said, I've always liked to sing. And do you see in your student groups, these two groups of people, one group saying, I've always loved to sing, I want to sing better. And then another group saying, I want to sing to make money. Mm. How do you deal with these two kind of people? Because I'm not sure which one is right. Uh, maybe both are fine. But do you perhaps think the second group, the one who's wanting to sing to make money, perhaps put a lot more pressure on themselves? Mm. You know, that's a, that's a, I've never been asked that question. And that's a really interesting question. I think sometimes the first group morphs in my experience into the second group. I think you have, in other words, said another way, I don't think I've ever met someone who doesn't love to sing, but who wants to make money singing. Usually what I, in my experience, you'll find people or I have and work with people both as professional singing colleagues and as clients and students who love to sing or certainly have always loved to sing, but now their focus becomes much more on economics. They're more concerned about being successful, making a living, making it, becoming number one, getting a record deal. And 
in, to your point or, you know, what one thing that your question has made me think about, there does seem to be um, a correlation between the amount of focus one puts on success, money, record deal, that, and a, and a lessening of the power uh, of the love of the instrument and the musicianship. So I do think you can hold both simultaneously. I think you can love to sing and long to be successful. And so long as the desire to, to be successful is related to sharing that love and your gift, those people seem to be not only the happiest, but interestingly, the most successful. Because it's, I think it's um, more sustainable. It can be pretty exhausting to be chasing after something, I guess, as elusive as fame if you're not really um, imbued with a love of it. True. And do you, do you train children as well? Do you start from a very young age coaching them? And if so, do you find them being perhaps pressurized by their parents to, to be a good singer? Of course, parents always want the best for their kids. Mm-hmm. But uh, do you find that perhaps um, uh, the pressure they apply may not be conducive for the child? You know, Manoj, I'm not just saying this. I know it's very common these days in interviews for people to say, that's a great question. But your questions are really, they're really provocative. I like them. So the two, two parts. One, I don't often work with children by choice. I have worked with children, professional children. For example, I worked with a young woman who was in um, Matilda on Broadway. Um, so, so I have worked and do sometimes work with children who are already professionals. So therefore, they really are in need of some professional coaching support. I personally believe, and of course, my belief is just my, my belief. Uh, it's not right or wrong. I think that the most important thing that children can do when it comes to singing and perhaps all music and art is to really fall in love with it, to really find their own way around it and have a tremendous amount of joy in it. I think that training, uh, technical training of a singer too young can do two things. One, it can, it can mess with the natural muscular development of an instrument that's frankly too, not immature in a negative way, but It's just not developed. And I think it can also really intellectualize the, a process that, as we said at the beginning is really autonomic. It's natural. It's reflexive. So if you're really getting kids to think about, you know, their palate, their support, their resonance, their placement before they've really had a chance to on their own and without language, experience their voice, experience their body, experience the joy of singing, experience the the joy of self-expression, the training can kind of trump that. It can kind of displace that. And it's not that that means it's forever lost. But I think the priority needs to be really with young people and people of all ages uh, on the natural experience of Uh, voice creation that that's the most important thing and then you add training on later and language to name those what what you've done and and created to the second part of your great question about the parents uh yes in the the united states i don't know there in australia but in the united states there's a very uh common phrase uh, expression called a stage mom i don't know if you have that a, a stage mother And what that means, of course, is that uh, it's very common that young children who are in, whether it's modeling or um, theater or singing, often has a parent behind that's really pushing them, the stage parent. Uh, And 
Yes, I see that very often. Um, as I mentioned, I don't often work with kids, but I get a lot of calls from parents saying, I have this talented son or daughter. Will you work with him? Can you give me advice? And of course, there are many parents who are really calling on behalf of a, a self-driven child and a child who it's their interest. And oftentimes it's from parents and that it seems that, that the interest really is in the parent and the push is in the parent. And maybe even there's uh, some you know, living vicariously through the child. So there, there, I see, I see both. And uh, I do think that that can be problematic. Uh, but, but honestly, I, that happens in academics too, right? The parent mm-hmm. that wants their child to go to a terrific school or the parent that wants their child to look a certain way or the parent that wants their child to excel in sports. So I think that that's a, not just a musical uh, family dynamic challenge. I think that that's a, a, a family dynamic challenge <laughs> overall. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do feel sometimes I do see parents putting that pressure on kids. And I always feel like walking up to the parents and saying, uh, let the kid be, you know, let them enjoy this life of being curious, making mistakes and and not push them towards perfection. Because if you do that, then what happens is the kid really doesn't know what it means to make mistakes and and enjoy the journey of perfecting themselves on their own. And many times the kids actually end up hating that particular mission that the parents are on. I've seen so many of that mm-hmm. through my friends and through even within the community or through, through friends, friends. So that's why I asked that question. Cause when it comes to creative arts, everybody wants to be a performer and they may not have been able to do it in their lifetime. So then they push the next best person, which is mm-hmm. the kid because they have full control over that kid. Well, you know, I have um, just to add something I have now an almost seven year old son And uh, I don't know if you have children, but I'll tell you, uh, becoming a parent is in my, for me has been, and my husband, we, we often marvel at what an amazing and humbling and awesome, awe-inspiring and awesome uh, learning opportunity and, and blessing it is. And it really is because you, you, you literally moment to moment to moment are learning new things about your child, yourself. Uh, the relationship, life, if you allow yourself to be open to that ongoing learning. And I think that to your, to your point, we all have, even, even those of us who've done some work, personal work and, and are, you know, for example, not choosing to push our, our uh, desires or, or wishes on our kids, we still all have stuff, right? Conscious and unconscious. And so it is this, <laughs> ongoing revelation of wonderful and not so wonderful views of yourself that you can see reflected in your child. And so almost daily, you know, we, it's an opportunity again, if you see it that way to say, Oh my goodness, is, is that really in me? Did I really put that out there? Okay. Let me, let me stop. Let me remember this isn't my life. It's his life. And so I think that, um, I, I have, uh, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for all parents. And I think, uh, I think most parents are, Uh, really well-meaning I think a lot of times we just we have our stuff and you know oftentimes we're not aware of the things we're putting on and projecting onto our kids but yeah sometimes it's painful to see um, in real time and certainly also the result of that uh, projection and pushing absolutely this is saying that it's not just the parents um, giving birth to a child it's the child giving birth to parents oh encapsulates it beautifully (laughs) well said well said Thank you. I came across uh, you for the first time when I was reading an article on psychology today, 
where you penned an article called The Perils of Intentions and Expectations with the tagline, Commitment is the key to achieving your goals, peace, and healthy relationships. And you started the article with this quote, which I'll read now. The cause of all upsets falls into one of the three categories, undelivered communications, sorted intentions, or unfulfilled expectations. Can you take us through your understanding of expectations and why it can often lead to disappointment? Yes. Well, I'm so, well, first of all, I'm so glad you found me and I'm glad you found and liked the article. You know, I think that expectations, first of all, I want to make it clear that language, I think, and um, I write quite a bit about language. Uh, language is something, a tool, as you know, that we default to and we have words that we learn and expressions that we have. But oftentimes we don't realize or think about the power of the words we use, both positive and negative. Um, to say, for example, uh, you know, I'm not attractive, or I don't like myself, or I'm, you know, this is a terrible situation. We think we're describing uh, an experience, but we're also creating an experience energetically. You know, the words that we use not only describe, but create our world. I really believe that. So to come back to a expectations, I think that when we have um, hopes and desires, uh, you know, I want to be, for example, a famous singer. When we, when we have that thought, when we use those words, we create, um, there's an energy to them. We give that power. And we, it's not something that we are uh, any longer thinking of as a, as a lovely desire to have. It, there, there becomes a chain, a kind of tether to it. I, I want to be a, a singer. I need to be successful. There, it becomes, um, it, 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 there's a, it's a grip. It's like a, something that has, we have a hold on, but it has a hold on us at the same time. Whereas intending something, you know, I would like to create a successful business. It's very different than I need to become a successful business person. So, Is this what you distinguished as intention and attachment? Yes. So I think that having an intention uh, is very different than, and a commitment is very different than being attached to something, being tethered to something. Um, and so that, to me, it seems like linguistically, perhaps, they're very close together, but experientially, I believe that they're very, very far apart. And in essence, it's the type of energy we bring to to whatever it is that we're dealing with. Is it something that our self-worth is attached to? Is it something that we have to do to feel valid and worthy? Or is it something that we, whole, complete, and perfect in the world and comfortable in our skin, are choosing to spend our energy on and our time on as an act of self-expression and creation and play? Very different, uh, very different experiences, um, even though we're, you know, technically going about the same thing of creating that business, pursuing a career as a professional singer or whatever it is that, that one is doing. I do agree with intentions and attachments. And many of the ancient scriptures of the world actually talk about this um, intention and attachment because the intention really stems from the fact that the mind wants it. Um, you know, the senses are in touch with nature and it creates these interests in the mind saying, I want this, I want that. And the attachment is, is where the mind goes, I can't survive if I don't get it. Mm -hmm. the, these ancient texts talk about 
not to be caught up with attachment but to put your best foot forward make the endeavor put that effort in but don't be attached to the result of your actions because that may not be in your hands and maybe it's not your luck to get it because if you don't get what you want the next step is you get frustrated yes and when you're frustrated you can't use your intelligence anymore and then you make the wrong decisions mm-hmm. right so so i agree with that article where you actually when i read that paragraph i was thinking yes this is a very important uh piece of information that everyone needs to know because if they don't understand the difference between intention and attachment then you're going to create a, a huge group of people in humanity who can't who can't function properly in today's society they can't manage relationships they can't manage their career they can't manage themselves and in your writings uh, you also mentioned uh, and this is the word this is the sentence you you wrote there you said most fears and insecurities as well as attachments and fixations they inspire are remnants of childhood and few months ago someone i know was saying that the trauma caused in our childhood years often stay with us long into our adulthood so much so that we don't even know what the incident is anymore that led to that trauma but the fear and depression that arose from it lingers and i heard this only few months ago perhaps in january and it really got me interested because i do like watching people react to a particular situation and i often question why did they do that why did they speak in that way why did they act in that way and now i'm figuring out more that perhaps it has something to do with something that happened in their childhood they may not know that anymore they may be in their 30s 40s 50s but that still is in their heart somewhere that grudge resentment or whatever positive or negative mm-hmm. i wanted to ask you jen um you observe this as well take us through how you observe this why you felt that way and how do you get people out of that entanglement mm. well i think entanglement is the perfect way to describe it but i think that we first have to bring a little grace to it to realize that we are animals and our minds are desi- by design uh their intention is to protect us you know, our brains are survival we're we're a survival machine you know it's a survival mechanism to say when something happens to us as children or in our lives uh that doesn't work for us or that's painful physically or emotionally a part of our mind says i don't want that so if someone that we trust does something that makes us not trust that person any longer our mind says on some level don't trust trusting isn't safe and to your point then we do carry that through it's the mind um just to step back to give a little context you know our minds don't really see the tree or the person in front of us or even our partner we have cognitive shortcuts after a while because there's too much information coming at us every minute of the day our brains couldn't possibly take in each bit of information newly you know the touch of the desk the feel of the chair the sound of a bird the voice of my child in the other room we have our mind to help us develops these shortcuts so i say oh that's my son oh that's a bird oh that's a tree oh that's something to avoid oh that's not safe so our brains in an effort to help us to serve us has have, our brains have inadvertently created situations that keep us may perhaps safe but not self-expressed and not uh, fulfilled 
So it does take some work to, I don't know that you can undo it. It's kind of like you can't, I don't believe, undo the thoughts and feelings in your head. They're, they're there. They're always going to be there. To try to resist them is futile. So I don't know that I think about it as undoing those, uh, those um, survival mechanism responses from childhood. But what I think we can do is, is grant some space and grace to them by saying, you know, things happened to me and I seem to have developed these resistance, uh, resistance patterns to either people, I'm making this up relationships, uh, I have fears of failure, you know, whatever it is. And that's there. And that may have served me in those situations, but they don't anymore. So to your question about how do you help people work through them, I believe it's looking very plainly at them and saying, uh, let's take an example to, to bring it, uh, to make it real. Someone says, for example, I really want to sing. I really love to sing. I really want to be a successful performer. And I'm terrified of being rejected. So wherever that comes from, I'm terrified of being rejected. Okay. Well, do you want to avoid rejection more or less than you want to sing and serve the world with your voice? So it ends up becoming a, you know, like a, a scale. You know, you have to decide. There's nothing wrong or bad with saying, no, I'm not going to follow my dreams because I'd rather not risk failure. But by looking at our life really from the end going backward and saying, at the end of my life, am I going to be happy that I didn't follow my dreams, that I didn't really go for the things that mattered to me out of fear? If you're comfortable with that, no problem. If you're not, then, then all there is left to do is to do the things that you long to do and that terrify you, terrify the heck out of you. And I think many people in my experience, Manoj, are, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're waiting for the fear to abate. They're waiting to feel more brave. They're waiting to, to have some certain sign that this is the right choice. And I don't think that that necessarily comes. The only time, can, you know, the consistent confidence starts to build is when you do things consistently. So my advice always is to sort of give, you know, to bring it full circle is action. Always take action. Take action in spite of your thoughts. Take action in spite of your fears. And then you end up creating new neural pathways. You end up creating new experiences and new messages uh, that are more in alignment with what it is you really want instead of um, surviving the things that happened to you in the past or perhaps that you're continuing to survive in the present. There is a saying that says um, bad decisions are better than no decisions. That's a good one too. I like that. Yes. Because you can learn from bad decisions, right? That's right. You're launching a new path in your life and you you'll definitely learn good or bad really is in in these instances our perspective how you look at it you know mm -hmm. uh, successful people look at failures as success and successful people look at success as an impediment to being more creative so they try to stay away from success and failure and they just focus on action and and how they can make a difference to people's life i think that's a good mindset recently on twitter not recently, maybe yesterday, where I said that you need five mentors in your life. This is just my observation. And I said, you need a financial mentor, you need a career mentor, you need a health mentor, you need a relationship mentor, and you need a spiritual mentor. And there I said, you should take this as a mission in your life and with an open mind, without being speculative, overly speculative, without prejudging, you should try to find these people. And I wanted to ask you, do you have mentors too? Absolutely. 
by the way, I love that number. In, in my last book, I talk about finding your trusted five, uh, not specifically about those uh, particular niches, but I do think five, for some reason, I have found is a, is a wonderful number of mentors to have because it's, it's, it's small enough that you can really uh, hone in on the wisdom that they have. Uh, but big enough to give you perspective. So, um, yes, I do. I have mentors, uh, musical mentors, and I also have many personal mentors. I have an affinity for, um, I've been told, and that's true, for the elderly. <laughs> I have a, a number of friends in their 70s and 80s that, that I guess I've never thought of them as mentors, but I think that they are. They're I just am so drawn to their wisdom and their perspective and their calm, a a kind of calm that seems to come when people have lived that long and seen so much. And it's called, uh, it's called maturity. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. There's, there's so many phenomenal uh, things about these men and women I'm speaking of um, that happen to be of that age. So I've heard it said that you are the culmination of the five people you surround yourself with, you know, around whom you're with the most. And I think that there's something to that. So I, I really do try to spend time with people, mentors and or friends that really inspire me and call me to be the best version of myself uh, that I can be. But I don't, I love your advice. I don't necessarily have a health mentor or an economic mentor. I've never thought of it that way, but that. That really is uh, is sage advice to to look at your life, all of those areas of your life, and make sure that you are getting coached or supported in or encouraged in or information about those areas. Because you know, again, if we don't consciously look uh, at areas of our life, I think we default to whatever the unconscious what's in us, and also in the cultural unconscious. So I think that that's really wise advice that you that you've said there. And you've said some wise words yourself, the importance of spending time with older people, because I do feel strongly that that group of people are being ignored in our life. Mm. And there's so much to learn from them because they're an institution in themselves. Talking about mentors, you've been a mentor yourself. And I want to go through perhaps a few of the testimonials you've received from your huge group of students. And this one here. Jennifer has changed my life and fixed my performance anxiety. This is from Laurie Wells, a Broadway singer uh, of shows like Trip of Love and Mamma Mia. On this one, she's talking about fear, and you touched on fear as well. Mm. Why fear? Why do people fear so much? Mm. Well, we need about eight hours to answer that question properly. But I think that um, (laughs) in... In when I think through my clients or my singers and my speakers, when I think through sort of uh, when I take a cursory look at the range of people with whom I've worked, you know, I think that fear is present because we genuinely think when we perform, whether we're speaking, singing, dancing, whatever it is, that our sense of self, who we are, is on the line. It's not that I, Jennifer, or Lori, for example, gets on stage and says, I am going to now sing, and I am completely fine and safe doing so, and people may like or not like my voice, but that's separate from me. The perception is that they will like or not like me, that the voice is me, that somehow I personally can be rejected. My ego, my sense of who I am can be 
injured as a result of how well or not well I do or how people perceive my performance. So I think that is the reason that at least in the performance realm, fear is such a huge entity, such an elephant in the room. Because it's not that, you know, people just get up and sing. They have so much attached to it to come back to commitment and attachment and intention and expectation. Their sense of self is on the line. It's not, you know, again, um, I'm, I use analogies all the time. When I walk out of the house and walk down the street and someone sees me, I'm not thinking, do they think I'm a good walker? Do they think I'm walking? Am I walk? It doesn't cross my mind. But people fail to recognize the reason I don't care if people think I walk well or cough well or brush my teeth well is because I have never given it significance. They think singing is significant and therefore fear is just an inherent part of the performance equation. It's not. It's something we've decided. Very, very interesting. And you touched the key word in, the, uh, in, that, uh, in what you were saying, and that's ego. Because the moment people watch you or you feel you're being watched your ego comes into uh into display you know me myself and i am i doing the right thing are people think nicely are they thinking nicely of me and i think those who know how to manage their ego you'll find they're the ones who are really stable mm. and that's something i feel should be taught from a very young age how do you manage your ego how do you manage your pride i think these two things are very powerful emotions that people have no idea how to how to manage so thank you for using that word here's another testimonial it has been said that there is no better way to serve and nourish the magnificence in another person than to listen open heartedly and without judgment which jennifer coaches and models beautifully this is from richard strilovich an executive from ibm Mm. So this is not someone who wants to sing. This is somebody who wants to do better at their work and their projects. Uh, what do people seek from you in, in this kind of setting? Mm. Uh, yeah, well, you know, when I was, um, I think my books, even though they're written uh, with singers as the target audience, they have found their way happily into the hands of executives, architects, all kinds of people, because they uh they're speaking about performance and self-expression so again even though i'm using uh, singing as the primary vehicle the theme really is about performance self-expression creativity comfort in all three of those things so i think word of mouth from the books um when i do master classes sometimes i have public speakers that come and those public speakers no executive so it really has been I've never advertised uh, for clients. It's it's all been happily very organic. And uh, so, yes, uh, Rich uh, was brought to my attention and actually had me come and do a webinar uh, for IBM in London. Uh, that's where that came from. Um, and it's, it's wonderful to work with such different groups of people, pro- professional singers, uh, corporate executives, um, public speakers. And one of the reasons, Manoj, honestly, is that you see not only the same kind of issues in everyone, but you really see the shared humanity of people and the shared concerns, which really boils down to, to your point about ego, wanting to feel safe, wanting to be liked, if not just accepted, wanting to feel comfortable, wanting to feel 
uh, as a, a part of something larger than themselves, a community. So to your point about the elderly and, um, and fear, I think that if I can take a minute to say, I think that's another reason fear is so prevalent. We certainly here in the United States and in the uh, ever-increasing West um, really have become so independent and we, we isolate ourselves. Uh, it's really about us and our success and, and how we're doing. And we no longer feel um, that we are a part of a, a larger whole, a community whole, uh, uh, just a, a humanity whole. And I think that that takes a toll and the result is fear. Um, and we, would we isolate that way and try to succeed as individual entities instead of um, seeing ourselves as part of a collective humanity? Well said again. We're coming to the end of our, our program, but I've got one more question and a request. Again, the last question is a testimonial. And this is from Rihanna Nelson, an artist and singer from Seattle. And she says, Jennifer is an incredible person and knows how to get to the core of performance psychology. Hmm. What is performance psychology? Well, you know, I think that performance psychology is human psychology. I think that the psychology that relates specifically to performance uh, speaks directly to what it takes mentally to get out of the way, whatever is in the way of sharing yourself fully, comfortably with other people. So I think that, you know, specifically to Rihanna's point and to the point of most singers that come wanting to learn about performance psychology, it's grappling as we touched upon with the fears that come up for us. It's making sure that we truly want more to share ourselves and perform and communicate than we do to protect ourselves and to look good. So really that's the realm of performance psychology. I think that's a podcast in itself. I may reach out to you again in a few months. I would love it too. Please don't hesitate to. I'd enjoy that conversation. And here's the request. Is there a favorite song that touches you that perhaps you may want to sing for us? <laughs> My favorite song. Maybe from your childhood? Hmm. I have a thousand favorite songs, but the one that comes to my mind, because I was just singing it to my son, which I love, is Somewhere Over the Rainbow. He always asks me to sing it, and I'll gladly sing a little bit of it for you all. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up there's a land that I've heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue and the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true i would go on and on and on if i could but <laughs> but that's the gist and it is such a beautiful song and it always makes me think of you know the bright horizon always there the rainbow that always waits for us and it has a a, a warm place in my heart that song that's beautiful. You say wise things and you sing wisely too. That's a beautiful song. <laughs> Thank you. And I know time has come for us uh, to say goodbye and I'm missing you already. But I wish you a great day ahead, a great life ahead. And please continue to make a difference to the lives of people and the voice of people. I oh. think uh, it's, it's wonderful what you're trying to do. Well, I, I mean it truly likewise. This has been a joy and you clearly have a gift for asking great questions and for 
it's clear that your intention is also to make a difference. And I'm grateful for that and grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you. It was an honor.